0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. and welcome to another Woodland Heritage Festival special edition of the Archaeology and A.L. podcast. The Heritage Festival was a two-day public event at the J.G. Graves Woodland Discovery Centre in Sheffield, with talks and hands-on family-friendly activities on archaeological topics. They aim to explain archaeology in a family-friendly and accessible way, so families and children could understand something new about the past and how we study it. So if you have any children in your family who like archaeology, this talk might be of interest to them as well. Last week, we presented the Virtual Heritage Talk, This week is all about zoo archaeology. Apologies again for the background noise. We were recording in the function room next to the cafeteria at the Woodland Discovery Centre, and it was a very busy day. Hello.
1: Uh, I think most of you know me. (laughs) I'm, I'm Jed. I'm a zoo archaeology student at the University of Sheffield and I specialise in the study of animal bones from archaeological sites. So, uh, zooarchaeology and why animals matter. So zooarchaeology is the study of animal bones recovered from archaeological sites. Uh, so it's different from just straight zoology and it's different from, well, the rest of archaeology. Zooarchaeology is a sub-discipline. So we get our material uh, the same way any archaeological material is produced. So. Uh, this is an archaeological dig at uh, York, I think it's the Copper Gate dig, and uh, when we get ideal preservation, which is uh, not acidic and not too wet, uh, we can get animal bones preserved, and then when we excavate them, we recover them. And what the archaeologist then is presented with is something a bit like this, so it's a bit of a jumble of bones, and uh, we have to try and uh, analyze them, interpret them and then produce something meaningful uh, about well, our interpretation of the past and how the animals were used in the past from this. So this picture just illustrates the uh, kind of the breadth of animals that could be used on a single site uh, at the time of occupation. So we've got a horse, we've got a pet dog, we've got ducks and geese, we've got chickens I think running somewhere, cows, sheep, a cat chasing a bird at the top, a kid playing with the cat. Uh, so there's lots and lots of different things going on in that picture. I'm not saying that's the same everywhere but you know you can sort of get that relationship with animals in the past is not just uh, food There could be pets uh, it could be for sport it could be ritual activity lots of different things going on so we have to try and understand this and interpret this and its importance in the past from this which is not straightforward okay uh, first diagram of the day this uh, is just a timeline really of from the point an animal is alive to the point we start analysing it. So these spaces are representing the amount of bones that we have, uh, the relative amount of bones at each stage. So the top stage, when all the animals were alive, at the time the site was occupied, is 100%. And then when we get down to the bottom, we might be maybe looking at 5% or 1% of the bones left. So bones go through a process uh, after the animals died. So we've got living community in the past, And then the animals might die, they might be killed by humans, they might be sold, uh, given to a different site. So we're losing some of the bone information uh, just straight away after the animals died. Then humans uh, butcher the animal, they might use the bones for tools, they might use them for making gaming pieces, all sorts of things. Or they might just dispose of the animals, they might burn the animal, Uh, might completely lose the bones. Uh, So we lose some more information then. We get damage from other animals, so we think about dogs gnawing bones. If you leave the bones out on a rubbish tip, we're just going to lose some of that information so the bones are destroyed. Then if we get uh, decomposition in the ground, so like I said before, if it's an acidic soil, the bones are going to decompose, we're going to lose them and we're going to lose that information. So the bones that go first will be softer bones or bones are of younger animals. Uh, so I knew that was going to happen, I it was going to land on my head halfway through. Uh, so we lose some of the information at each stage. and Eventually, when an archaeologist is excavating the bones, with the best will in the world, they may miss some of the bones. You know, Think of small bones, toe bones, uh, bones of smaller animals, so you think of bones like of a pigeon compared to the bones of a cow. It's more obvious when you've got a cow bone, so you're less likely to miss that, but more likely to miss the pigeon bone, so you're losing some information then. So eventually, what an archaeologist is given is a box of bones uh, that is lots of other bones missing, so we've missed lots of information through from the point the animals were alive to the point we've got that box so before we can do any interpretation any analysis of the bones really we have to try and understand each stage what's happened so we know what the biases are in the assemblage so we can try and take that into account in our final interpretation so we're always trying to reconstruct this from this so it's always just a small sample size Okay, uh, so once we've got our box of bones, it could be anything. Uh, I don't know if you've been out to the activity area yet, if you've not, I encourage you to do so. Bones don't come colour-coordinated and nicely labelled and laid out on a table. They could be any animal, any species, and the first job really is to decide what the animal is. Uh, So each individual bone uh, we would take and we try to identify it. There's a number of ways we do that. The most common way is by using a, a reference collection. So the University of Sheffield's got a brilliant reference collection. It's over several rooms uh, and if you ever need to identify a bone I definitely recommend you get intuition and, and have a go. Uh, so the reference collection is, is organized in a way that we have the same elements. So these are all uh, these are all humorized. So these are all like, a funny bone of different animals. So we know what the animal is. Uh, so when we take an unknown bone we can go and see which is uh, the most likely candidate for identification we work by process of elimination so we'd rule out animals rather than uh guess that that is a best fit because you might your best fit that you come to first might be the wrong one you say, oh yeah it looks a bit like that and then you identify it as, as that animal that's not the best way of doing it we do it by process of elimination if you don't happen to be at your lab and you are out in the field somewhere you can use bone manuals you can use uh, uh something like a bone atlas which is is useful, it's good, you know, if you've got nothing else, it's certainly the best thing to go for. Uh, But it's no substitute really for having the bone in your hand, you can turn it 3D, you can do all sorts of different things with it. We're also getting a lot more sophisticated in terms of our techniques in identifying bones as well, so we've got ancient DNA studies, and we've got uh, analysis of proteins, something called zooms. Uh, So you look at the protein composition, which is different for each species of, of mammal, and you can identify bones that way. It's a very expensive way of doing it compared to just looking at it by eye in a reference collection. But it can be very accurate. Uh, and the other downside is it's destructive as well. You have to take a sample from the bones. Okay, so once you've identified your bones, you're happy with what the bones are, you really want to start looking at how the animals were used in the past. So diet is one of the big questions, really, especially for the main domestic animals. Uh, so we can get information from individual bones. So we can get butchery, we can get... Uh, production so these two holes here uh, and these scapular shoulder blades are from where these have been hung up to dry really so to cure, cure the meat then we can get butchery marks as well so we can get uh, kind of cut marks where the meat has been taken away from the bone and depending on what type of cut marks you've got you can discuss how the animal was used so you get cut marks that are different for skinning for filleting you get chop marks so has the bone been split up into lots of different pieces and then distributed or is the whole bone been cooked at once so if you're thinking about a whole leg of of a cow cooked at once is that a big party that's going on or if it's all been chopped up into little pieces and distributed across the site uh, is that more day-to-day use of an animal so that's individual bones if we look at the whole assemblage we might want to look at specialist practice so we could look at maybe meat production so the best time to uh, slaughter an animal for meat consumption is when the animal reaches its optimum weight so that is when it's not going to grow anymore so it's not going to get any bigger and you're not going to feed it any more food to waste uh, resources so that depending on the species and this one it's uh, I think it's, this was sheep you can see the age of the uh, animal down the bottom and the percentage of bones from the assemblage so the most bones are actually uh, between one and three years when the animal isn't going to get any bigger and they're not going to produce any more waste they've been slaughtered between one and three years So should think maybe it's meat production we have got some um, very young animals but that's more likely to be doing the diet of birth uh, shortly after birth if we look at milk production really what you want to do is uh, well in this case of cows is remove the calf and kill the calf as quickly as possible after birth so you can collect the milk the calf doesn't get the milk So what we get when there's specialised milk production is a huge spike in the amount of very young animals that die and then older females mainly towards the end. So you can see that very obviously if if that is the case you've got specialised milk production. Um, When you've got milk, you can make milk, you can cheese, uh, put eggs on which you don't get from cows. uh, But sometimes we find uh, eggshells on sites as well. So when you've got chicken bones, is it chicken meat, is it chicken bones that's the main thing? So you have got lots and lots of eggshells. Maybe. Uh, Maybe egg production is the focus rather than the meat production. Of course, animals can be used for lots of other things as well, apart from just for eating. So when preservation is good, we can uh, get things like leather preserved. So this is a leather shoe that's been found. And we can use bone for pretty much anything. So these are bone pins, uh, bone dice. Anything can be used, really. I mean, we didn't have plastic in the past, so, you know, bone... Horn, leather they're all used for very different things uh, so we've got an antler handle on this uh, knife this isn't archaeological we've got a horn mug so horn very much is like the plastic of the past you heat it up you can shape it anyway which way you want and then uh, this one here in the bottom left is a bone skate so if you take the uh, foot bone from a horse and you polish the underside of it put some leather straps on it put it on the bottom of your shoe uh, and you can skate quite happily uh, using that so we do find these uh, sometimes when the preservation is good. Animals are also used for lots of other things so for thousands of years animals have been used to carry things for us or even carry us. So this is a tomb painting from ancient Egypt, uh, two oxen pulling a plow, this is a rather unhappy donkey carrying uh, something in a sack. I don't know if he's trying to encourage the donkey along but anyway people have been using animals to carry things for thousands of years. The way we can look at that as a zooarchaeologist is to look at the bones, see uh, the disease in the bones or the marks in the bones that have been caused by lots of hard work. So we get things like uh, arthritis, So we get bone growth uh, where the bone is under pressure, it's been worked a lot so the bone kind of reacts to that and grows out. We also get marks as well where the cartilage wears off from where the animal's been walking, uh, carrying heavy loads and I don't know if you can see the scores, in this in this bone this is a toe bone uh, of uh, a cow and there's just score marks into it where the bones have just been grinding against each other I imagine this cow was in quite a lot of pain when it's alive but it must have been working quite hard to produce these marks as well so we can look at how animals were used not just for food and not just for the products when they die, but also when, when they were alive as well we can look at lots of other things as well like social status so when the uh, after the Norman invasion we had something called the forest law which meant that you could only hunt deer uh, by royal allowance really you know you had to get permission uh, to hunt deer in the forest so this graph on the left uh, showing the relative proportion of cow sheep pig and deer at four different sites and they've all got all of these animals present however Cowick Manor 40% of the animals found on the site were deer so if you compare that to the Dragon Hall sites and uh, Fakum, it's, it's a big difference. So you might interpret that as a royal site because they were allowed to hunt deer on that site. And in fact, Carrick Manor is a royal hunting lodge. So the, the only real difference between these is the royal permission for hunting. Um, they're quite comparable in terms of uh, status as a, as a manor. But it's, it's the hunting uh, permission that's the big one there. So you can see there's a big difference in status there. Falconry is an important practice in the past as well. So there were rules about who could own what types of birds. So uh, Yeoman might have a goshawk, whereas someone higher up in the aristocracy might have a peregrine falcon. It's the peregrine falcon school. So if you find this individual species, not only are you looking at uh, the activity of falconry itself, uh, it's quite important. But you're also getting an idea of the social status of the individual who owned that, that bird as well. So you can try and tie into rank really and then maybe interpret the rest of the assemblage based on the status of the person who was at the site at the time of occupation. Uh, so I've already talked about deer hunting at sites. Deer hunts weren't just about the deer. There's lots of other things involved. We've got dogs, we've got horses, we've got people. Uh, it's a big event. It's a big, you know, it's a big economic event. It's involving lots of other people, lots of people employed. Uh, in a deer hunt. So they can be quite important things to look at. Other sports, uh, well, we still do them today, Uh, dog racing, horse racing, pigeon racing, all sorts of things. We don't have uh, cockfighting anymore. It's fairly barbaric. This is a picture of a medieval uh, cockfight. And when we're trying to find uh, evidence for this, we might look at how many male chickens we've got. So this is a male uh, chicken foot bone. You can see the spur on it. So, that was used for, for cockfighting. Occasionally, when people didn't think uh, the male chicken was deadly enough, they would cut off the natural spur and attach uh, an iron spike instead with a strip of leather. And sometimes you find these iron spikes. It's pretty grisly, it's pretty horrible. Sometimes you find the iron spikes, sometimes we just see the cut mark across the spur. And when we see something like that, you can be pretty confident it's, it's cockfighting, not just uh, the rooster that's been kept for, for the hens for the eggs. Okay, hopefully I've shown you that animals do matter. We can look at lots of different aspects of uh, human life in the past and the relationship with animals and what that tells us about the past and you know, how we should be treating animals maybe or not treating animals. Anyway, uh, thanks very much. And that's me done.
0: Next time stay tuned for another special edition introducing some more activities at the woodland heritage festival next time we'll be presenting a talk on making white coal using cupids and some hands-on experimental archaeology if you'd like to know more about the archaeology in the city program which sponsored the woodland heritage festival and the program's regular monthly archaeology and ale talks which are held upstairs at the red deer pub in sheffield you can follow the link from the archaeology podcast network page to our website or find us on facebook under archaeology in the city Thanks again to the Archaeology Podcast Network for having us. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com